I've been perking on this one for three weeks. So that means you're in trouble. The hardest part was trying to make it as succinct as possible because this is one of those parables that's hard to do that with. There's too much going on. But I promise I will try. That I promise. Matthew 25. And it's the last section of Matthew 25. Often referred to as the story of the sheep and the goats. There we go. All right. Stand together for the reading of God's holy, inerrant word. Hear the words of your king this morning. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and errant word. May he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. You may be seated. Listen, I'd be lying if I didn't tell you This has always been one of the scariest texts in all of Scripture for me. First, for the obvious reason. Jesus is teaching on hell. It's described here as eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. 
Now, I don't know how you could read that casually. Secondly, and this is another reason why I've always kind of read this passage and want to move on to the next one, is because it's, Jesus seems to imply here, listen to me, that, that those whom he banishes go to hell because of their lack of certain good works. Right? If it, just kind of a, a flat reading of the text, a simple reading without really looking at the context, without really giving it a deep study, it just seems like it's on the basis of works that people enter into heaven. God welcomes them in because they did good things, and then God sends people to hell because they did bad things. And so this is, is not uh, um, always an easy text. Well, especially for me as a younger Christian who came to faith in Christ because God had shown me through, the, through his word and through the conviction of my sins of, through the Holy Spirit, he'd shown me how unable I was to do what God required perfectly. And so I knew I had no hope without the mercy of God that's shown to us in Christ. And I knew that the Bible taught all over the place that salvation is a free gift of God's grace in Christ received by faith alone. So to me, this passage just didn't jive. Feel where I'm coming from? But I must say, um, as a pastor, and I'm going through the book of Matthew, and this is one of those times where you have to do a passage whether you like it or not. That's what I love about going through a book. But it also means that my Lord and Master um, forced me, in a good sense, to really have to wrestle with this text and give it a good study and really try to figure out what he's saying in this sermon of his. Because think about it this way, too. I'm responsible for presenting it to you and making sure that I'm presenting what Jesus actually said and what he meant. So the neat thing about my study is obviously, um, this is probably no surprise to you. There's tons of surprises in this text, but this won't be a surprise. After doing a deep study, I see here that obviously this text does not contradict the Bible's teaching everywhere else, even in the book of Matthew itself. Jesus is teaching that salvation is by faith, and it's a gift of God. What we see here is that Jesus is not teaching us here how to receive salvation, but rather, this is important to see, rather he's teaching us what those who have received salvation do. In other words, this is a picture of the redeemed. How do they behave? How do they act? Especially to the little ones, the least of these. The poor, the sick, the naked. The destitute of Christ's brothers. But I want, I want you to see something else. And this is where we go deeper in the rabbit hole. I want to show you in my exposition of the text that the point Jesus is making here is actually even more profound and more nuanced than that. Whoa. It goes deeper than just saying, this is, those who are saved will do good works. That's what I want you to see. And that's the real, when we get to the punchline of the text, I hope you have that same aha moment that God gave me as I looked at it. So if Jesus isn't teaching us that we can earn heaven by works, or if he's not even primarily teaching us here that works are a proof of genuine faith, then what is he teaching us through this story 
of the sheep and the goats. I'm going to mention it once, and then we're going to expound it. Here's what we're going to see in the passage. Upon his return, Jesus, the King of glory, is going to judge the people of the nations on the basis of what they did or didn't do to him. Listen, this is an important thing. I'm going to say it again so you don't miss it. Upon his return, Jesus, the King of glory, is going to judge the people of the nations on the basis of what they did or didn't do to him. And I think you're going to see that. But I, I, before I jump into the three um, headings that are actually in this text, we'll see the judge, we'll see the basis of his judgment, and we'll see his actual judgment. Those are the three things that this text breaks into. Uh, before we do that, um, in order to help us understand and apply the text correctly, we've got to remember this. And normally when I read this text, I totally read it out of its context. Uh, most of us probably do, right? Um, if we keep it in its context, we've got to remember this is the last illustration that Jesus is giving in a long sermon about his second coming. So this doesn't, it's not just fall out of, didn't just fall out of heaven all by itself. This, Jesus has been telling us how to what? Be prepared for when he comes again. He's been telling us how to be ready, how to make sure that when he comes, we won't be found caught unawares. And so as he gets to this last story, the one of the sheep and the goats, he's just adding one last clincher of what, how we must be ready for when he arrives. And I'm going to do, I only have a few quotes from others, so, but they're very important, so just stick with me. This is one from Michael Green, and he puts it into a good context for us, so then we can now hit the ground running with the points. Michael Green says this, the return of Christ, he's summarizing the whole sermon for us in a few sentences, the return of Christ is the future dimension of the kingdom, is one of the greatest importance that citizens of the kingdom are ready to meet their king when he comes. Now listen. These five parables, I have to interrupt them for one minute. The, the story of the sheep and the goats, though, is not a parable. Maybe we'll talk about that later. But these five parables, which Matthew has gathered together here, show believers what Jesus expects of us in the time between his first coming and his last. He looks for his servants to be watchful, holy, ready to meet him at any time, faithful in the use of their gifts and opportunities, and above all, full to overflowing with his self-forgetful, self-sacrificing love. That's what this section is about. There is no higher calling, and it is open to the humblest disciple. That sets the framework for us in a good spot for us to understand it. So as we take a look at it, let's first take a look at Jesus is teaching itself, and let Jesus speak. And the first thing we see clearly, Jesus speaks about the judge. Take a look with me at verse 31 and 32. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, the first surprise in this text, who's the king? Who's the judge? That's right. But 
Think about this. You have to, we've been going through Matthew's gospel. We're talking about Jesus of Nazareth. We're talking about this humble man from Nazareth, born of a peasant woman. Stepdad was a humble carpenter that couldn't even afford the, the normal sacrifice when his uh, child was born. We're talking about the one who had no place of his own to lay his own head. The one who would soon be shamefully treated, maligned, ultimately suffer a criminal's death on the cross. So that people would say, you're such a king, save yourself. You can't even save yourself. And what Jesus is saying here, because remember, the very next passage, he says, let's go. The Passover has come and the Son of Man must go and die and be crucified. So what we have to see is right before his passion, Jesus is saying to his disciples here who are listening, I am the one that the whole world will have to come and give an account to. Don't you fear about that. I may have come humbly the first time as a lamb that must be slain, but believe me, when I come back again, I will be sitting on the throne of glory. And everyone from all nations will come before me. What's interesting here in this text, so you can see this, it says that all the nations will be gathered before him. Those are Jesus' words. And here's an important thing to see. This is one appointment that everyone will keep. There's not going to be any no-shows. You know how you talk about no-shows? You ever go where, where they take attendance? You know, in schools, I remember in high school, we'd always have these attendance things, and they would, they would call out your name. When I go to jury duty, they say, say yes if you're here. You know what I'm talking about? And then, of course, there's inevitably that person, John Smith. Cricket. And then, of course, the person taking role will say, anybody know where John Smith is? In this text, we see there's not going to be any of those no-shows. No, no one's going to be unaccounted for. They will all appear before King Jesus. And they will have to give an account. And I think what's important here to see, and we can miss it, if we jump too quickly to the next point, and that's this. All the nations will be gathered before him. Not Muhammad. Not Buddha. Not our ancient ancestors, not Mother Earth. Yeah, I met somebody when I was in Florida. We were kind of sharing a little bit with him, and he, that's, he believed in Gaia, Mother Earth. That's God. You know what? Here's the interesting thing. Not even Moses are the people going to be poor, appear before. They will be appearing before the Son of Man. Many are going to be surprised in that day. They're going to be like, uh, All this many paths to God or all paths lead to the same place. Nonsense will be laid to rest forever. Praise be to God. There's going to be no guessing then. This judgment will be done with great finality. And notice what Jesus says. He will separate the people one from another. Look at how personal it is, though. The nations come before him. He doesn't separate nations. You notice what he separates? People. It's important to see here. 
especially those of us who kind of always feel like God's on our side, our nation. You know, our nation is the nation God loves. You know what? He's going to judge individually between all the nations. And he's going to separate very personal. It's going to be a personal judgment between the sheep, the sheep and the goats. There is a separation. And it also teaches us here a very important thing, and then we're going to go to the second point. For those who say, love wins. And what they mean by that is, we all go to heaven. Jesus would beg to differ. And I'm putting my money on Jesus every time. Here we see a great separation. It's an awesome picture, isn't it? As I told you before, it's hard to stare at. But Jesus is the judge. He will be the one at the end, the one who men mocked and laughed at and said, yeah, you're the king. He will come and he will come. Notice who he's coming with. I like the way Randy Neighbors puts it. He's coming with his posse. All the angels. That's going to be awesome. In his heavenly glory, in his majesty. Glory. For some, that's what we're going to take a look at this next thing. Jesus is the judge. Let's take a look at the basis of the judgment he renders. I don't know about you, but I would sure want to know on what basis he's going to be separating sheep and goats. What's the criteria? You with me? Surprise number one, lowly Jesus of Nazareth will be the judge on the throne. Surprise number two, listen to this. Jesus says it. The nations will be judged on the basis of what they did or didn't do to Jesus when he was in need. I'm going to explain that, but I want you to feel the weight of that first. They will be judged on what they did or didn't do when Jesus was hungry. When Jesus was thirsty. When Jesus was thrown in prison. And so on. Look. Look at verse 40. I'm not going to read the whole text. It would take us a very long time if I kept doing that. So let me just focus. Verse 40. You heard the text read earlier. The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. That's the punchline. In ministering to these little ones who belong to Jesus, they ministered to Jesus. So it's no wonder... That that's the criteria by which Jesus judges the world. How they treated him. It's always about, are you with Jesus or not? Isn't it? It's always about, are you connected to Jesus through faith? And do you prove your faith and repentance through a life that has changed? All over the Bible, that's consistent. What what does the Apostle Paul say in, in Acts? He says, I taught the people what? When he was giving an account to himself to Agrippa. That they should repent. Um, They should turn to God, they should repent, and they should prove their repentance by what? Their deeds. What they do. Yes. Salvation is by grace through faith. Judgment is by works. That's what we see here. Because the works prove who we really belong to. And there's very specific works here in mind, which we'll get to in a moment. 
But what we need to see here is that Jesus so identifies with his people, his followers, his disciples, even the least of them, or better yet, especially the least of them, that he receives whatever is done or not done to them as if it was done directly to him. Listen, here's an important point to see, because we're going to get to that next week, I believe. You remember how people uh, twist that one text where Jesus says, the poor you'll always have with you. And they, they kind of mean that like poo-poo, we don't have to help the poor. That's not what Jesus was saying there, and we'll get to that next week. But Jesus is basically saying, because the woman was anointing his feet, remember, for his burial? He was saying there, the poor you will always have an opportunity, in other words, to minister to me when I'm not here by serving the poor among me, among us. You get it? He's saying, but now I'm still here in body, so she's ministering to me directly, and it will not be taken from her just showing you the reverse of here so he's saying that when he goes and he ascends which is going to happen later how do we minister to jesus it's by ministering to the the those who are the most destitute who trust in him and so we see here loving deeds done or not done to the least of jesus's brothers are not works that merit heaven or hell but rather demonstrate clearly whether or not they really possess a faith that saves, whether or not they really love Jesus. Look, Proverbs 20.11 puts it real simply for all of us to understand in case this theology gets a little uh, confusing to us. Listen, Proverbs 20.11. Even a child is known by his actions whether his conduct is pure or right. So even we know what's inside kids by telling how they act. And so Jesus is judging between Uh, folks in the nations by their actions it proves what's inside right because listen we could always lie about what's inside but in the long haul how we live our life shows what we where we really are trusting and who what we really love who we really love and there's some other clear evidence in this text i want you to see it's very important that shows us that Jesus isn't talking about doing these things. The takeaway from this text isn't. This is what I'm trying to tell you. Don't go home. All right? And if you do, you're doing it over my clear message here. Don't go home and say, okay, so now if I feed the poor, if, I, if I, I, I'm going to have to uh, give drink to those who are thirsty, and that way God will promise I get to heaven. If you, if you hear that message, you heard it wrong. You know, it's like the guy comes up after Dick Lucas preaches a sermon on, on grace and salvation, and someone comes up to him and says, yeah, it's, I, I appreciate what you said. It's like I always say, God helps those who help themselves. And Dick Lucas goes, oh. He said, if I said that, I'm a Dutchman. <laughs> and he's British. But I just want to make sure no one walks away and says something like that. But look, there's clear evidence in the text that that's not the case. Here's the interesting thing. When Jesus says, you know, for when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. What's the response of the righteous? And also later, the, the, the wicked. When? When did we see you hungry and give you something to eat? The point is, they didn't even realize they were doing it. In other words, otherwise, if they did it consciously, they would be like, of course he's letting us in because we deserve it. We helped all those poor people. They didn't say that. They said, when, Lord? When did we ever minister to you? They did it unselfconsciously. Big word. In other words, they served the least of these, his brothers, naturally. 
their compassion and care for their poor and needy fellow brothers and sisters in Christ flowed naturally out of redeemed, regenerated hearts and minds. So they weren't, so this is what you have to see. They weren't like, of course, this is what we deserve. And I want to tell you why I'm mentioning this. One time I went to this really cool Christian ministry that I still really appreciate. And they have uh, the one gentleman puts out, he's the head of, of their um, soup kitchen ministry. And I remember I thought it was so awesome to talk to him. He's like the leader of, of the ministry, and I'd get his take on different things. And then he said something that broke my heart, and literally my heart fell into my stomach. He said, after all I do here, I know Jesus is going to let me in. And I just went, oh, oh, no. He's got it wrong. That's not what Jesus is saying. That would contradict the rest of the whole book of Matthew, which I'm going to spare you the time unless you want me to jog you through the whole book. I, I actually have notes to do that, but I won't do it. And what we're going to do is I thought, you know, we can have a question and answer time another time, and I have the notes. So I'm going to spare you that. But what I am going to do is show you another uh, thing that's important in the text. And that is we have to see that there is a qualification here that we can't ignore, we can't pass over or gloss over, we have to see it does color the text, and it does help us so we understand how to not only understand the text correctly, but how to apply it. Because that's the important thing. It's just not knowing what it means, but how do we live in light of it. And I want you to see there's a few words here that are important. He says, what you have done, right, to the least of these, what? My brothers, or these brothers of mine. That's to say Jesus is not here in this text. Speaking about the poor in general, the hungry in general, all the people in the world who are naked and in prison and hungry. He's speaking very specifically about the poor disciples of his. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show you that in a moment beyond the shadow of a doubt. You don't hear me say that all the time in preaching, but I'm going to tell you beyond the shadow of a doubt, that's what he's saying. First of all, because he says it. They're his brothers. Right. But what I want you to see here, too, and this is a caveat for those who are listening to a New City Fellowship sermon podcast. Just because he's not speaking about that here does not mean it's not taught everywhere else in the Bible that we are to care for the poor in the community in general. So, for instance, and I'm just going to give a couple quick cross references in case we do have some skeptics out there. Galatians 6.10, the Apostle Paul clearly says, Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. Right? Regardless of where they stand with God. But then he adds, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So one other quick reference so you know that um, this is still something the Bible teaches, just not necessarily in this text. When the Lord talks about loving your neighbor as yourself, what's an example he gives? the Good Samaritan, who just helps a neighbor that he sees that's in need. He doesn't ask him what his spiritual condition is. So the Bible teaches that all over the place. I've dedicated my life for six years here telling you that the Bible teaches that all over the place. But let me tell you why I want to emphasize this part of the text. Yeah, this is pretty technical stuff, isn't it? I'll tell you why. Because we don't want to be guilty of reading the things we're most passionate about in every text. Because if we do that, first of all, that's dishonest with the word of God, and we will have to answer for it. 
Secondly, it takes away the power and authority of all the other texts that do speak about it when we do mention them. You understand? So here we have to stick with what Jesus says. Lastly, it doesn't really get us out of much, does it? Because Jesus tells us to preach the good news to the poor. And if we do that, many of them are going to get saved, and then we are going to have to care for them, aren't we? And their problems will be our problems. In Matthew 28, Jesus is going to say, go make disciples of all the wealthy in the nations. No, just says all nations. That's my little spiel. But let me show you here that there's a particular reference um, to his people. And that now it makes complete sense why he would say, if you've, whatever you've done to them, you did to me, because Jesus associates that closely with us, his redeemed people of God. Okay, first of all, when Jesus refers to his brothers in the Gospel of Matthew, the whole Gospel of Matthew, every single time he's referring to his disciples, every single time, without question. I'll give you just a few to spare you. Uh, chapter 12, verse 48 uh, to 50, it's when his mother and brothers come to visit him, and, and they tell him, Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside. They want to talk to you. And he's teaching the word. And he says this, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Later on in chapter 28, after Jesus rises, raises from the dead and Mary and Mary Magdalene, the two Marys, come to see him after he rose from the dead. Jesus suddenly met them, it says, and he says this, Greetings. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Referring to his disciples. The verb translated that Jesus says, These little ones are the least of these, occurs in Matthew a number of times. And let me just give you one quick one, uh, because there's a number of times. But in chapter 10, beginning of verse 40, listen. He who receives you receives me, Jesus says. And he who receives me receives the one who sent me. Notice again the connection, identity of Jesus and his people, and Jesus with the Father. Anyone who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And anyone who receives a righteous man because he's a righteous man will receive a righteous man's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, least of these, same verb, because he is my disciple, I tell you the truth, he will certainly not lose his reward. That's powerful stuff. I only got one more because it's, a, it's the atom bomb, and it's found in the book of Acts. And you remember the story, so I'm not going to go to it. We don't, we're not going to read the whole thing. But you remember when Saul was breathing out murderous threats against God's people. He's on his way to imprison them, and you remember what happened. King Jesus meets him on the road to Damascus. And you remember what Jesus said to Paul? Well, I will remind you and read. This is what he says. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Notice he doesn't say, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute my church? What does he say? Why do you persecute me? 
So when we don't care for the least of Jesus' brothers, and listen, this is why it doesn't relieve any conviction. i got to be honest. Maybe I'm too honest behind the pulpit. That's probably a fault of mine. God's people often annoy me, man. i got to be honest. Sometimes I go out with non-Christians and I'm like, ah. <laughs> hey, listen, you could all say, oh, Pastor, how evil you are. But come on, there's a little something that in you. Um, but that's why this is so deeply convicting. Because as I look at you, as you look at me, as we look at the worst off in the kingdom who truly believe in Jesus, how we treat them and concrete acts of service, not just how we treat them in talking. That's how we're treating Jesus. That's what he says here. To the point where Jesus says, you even give a little glass of cold water. Think about that. doesn't seem like such a huge deal, does it? Water's free in most cases. You, know, you go to your tap when people, when you say, you know, you need something to drink or what can I get you? I usually feel like bad, like, I'm sorry, I don't have any juice, I don't have any soda, but here I have water. And Jesus is saying, you give that to someone who's really thirsty, who knows me and loves me, believes in me. You've done it to me. And listen, you have to understand, when people came to Christ, especially then, and even now in other, other countries than America, we have it so good we just don't realize how good we have it. They get thrown in prison, many of them, because they profess the name of Christ. Jesus isn't, in this text, talking about going to visit someone who murdered somebody. Although, in the terms of mercy, and in terms of loving our neighbor, and in terms of outreach, we should do that. But here he's specifically referring to like what Hebrews talks about, people that get thrown in prison because they belong to Jesus. And then they're left there to rot. And Jesus says, no, no, no. When that poor one who believed in me is suffering because he stepped out and said, I don't care what happens, I'm going to wave my banner. When you go and you don't forget him, when you don't neglect him, you've done it to me. And, of course, the opposite is just as true. Those who fail to serve and love Jesus in this way will go away to eternal punishment. Because those who don't minister to Christ as he's represented by the least of these, his brothers, they're simply showing that they have never experienced the gracious work of God in their hearts. Think about it. How could you have the gracious Love of work of God in your heart when you fail to show basic compassion. There's a huge cross reference I could give for this that really goes with Matthew 25, and it's called the book of First John. But I will not read the whole thing to you. But I will bring one one verse up. Listen. 317, if anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. Isn't that exactly what Jesus is saying here? He's simply saying that how you treated his people in need is how, how you're treating him. And that will determine where you spend eternity. In the kingdom prepared for the righteous, from the foundation of the world, those who are blessed of the Father, or in the eternal fire, notice who is prepared for, 
originally the devil and his angels. Why? Because your actions or non-actions toward him show your faith in him or your lack of faith in him. Listen. My last point is really short, so don't be nervous. I remember when we helped a dear sister in uh, one of the teams came and helped a dear sister in the city here who knows Jesus um, when Sandy came and we helped with her house. She was distraught. She didn't know what she was going to do. And the team came and supported her and showed her love and worked on her home. And I remember to this day, I don't remember all the thank you cards, but I remember this one because she said something that was very interesting to me. She said, I know we're not, I'm not a non-Christian from the community and I'm already a believer, but I wanted to still tell you how much of an impact you had in my life and how much it meant to me. And I bring this up because I want you to see this wasn't a side thing. It wasn't like, oops, well, that was a secondary issue. This hit the nail on the head. Right? Do good to all men, but what? Especially those in the household. So in ministering to her, who'd they minister to? Jesus. Powerful. We serve the broader community because many of the other passages that tell us to do so. Amen and amen. But the passage before us states plainly in Jesus' own words that serving those in need among God's people, far from being a consolation prize, is actually an acceptable, important work of God's kingdom that is one of the main criteria which proves one is among the righteous that will be welcomed into the kingdom, prepared for them by their Father since the creation of the world. So D.A. Carson summarizes the whole thing for us with these words. We wait for the Lord Jesus as people whose lives are so transformed by the gospel that they, self, that they unselfconsciously serve brothers and sisters in Christ in self-sacrificing ways. That's what the text is about. It took me a long time to figure that out, but it's good sometimes going the long way, so you make sure you get it. Last thing, and a short last point. We saw the judge, we saw the basis of the judgment, and now we've got to look at the judgment. Verse 46, Jesus just sums it up. After he talks about um, separating the sheep and the goats on the basis of what they did or didn't do to him, he says this speaking of those who didn't do it to him, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Those who failed to show the compassion mentioned in this passage to the least of Jesus' brethren will find themselves, according to Jesus, in the most dreadful place known to man. Jesus calls it here, his words, eternal punishment. And I'm not going to spend a long time on it, but just a couple words we need, to, we need to hear. This is not annihilation. Some people want to avoid the truth that hell is forever. And so they teach that hell is, because Jesus uses the word Gehenna, that's the literal Greek text, which was a, which was a dump 
a garbage dump that was always being was always uh, lit on fire and consuming. Um, but the problem here with that view that it's uh, the, the wicked will be annihilated is that notice Jesus calls it eternal punishment. That means it lasts forever. And, and what does he contrast it with? Eternal life. So just like the life that we get granted through faith in Christ goes on forever, so does, unfortunately, the punishment. It'll be final. It'll be unchangeable. It'll be too late. And unlike the ACDC song that God actually used to scare me and chase me to himself, um, the song Highway to Hell, it intimates that It'll be a promised land where all his friends are going to be there too. I got bad news for you. You're not going to see your friends there. And if you do, it will not be a case of comfort to you. You remember the the parable or the story that Jesus told in the Gospel of Luke where the rich man finds himself in hell? Do you remember what he says to Abraham? Go and tell my brothers, warn them so that they won't come to this place. It's a place of despair. No party down there. Darkness. On the other side, heaven will be the most glorious place known to man. It's a place of glory. Jesus has been describing it, um, not only in this passage, but through the whole sermon he's preaching on his second coming. It'll be a place of joy. It'll be a place of life that's everlasting. Jesus calls it specifically a place prepared for those blessed by his Father, prepared for them as an inheritance since the creation of the world. So in case you missed the grace, sovereign grace of God in this passage, there it is. It's been prepared for you before the creation of the world. God in his mercy has called you out of the world to become a part of his chosen, redeemed, sanctified He's prepared a place, a place that's beyond description. We get little glimpses of it, but we won't know that joy until we're there. That I promise you. Sometimes preachers like myself, I'm closing with this, will say things like, there are only two kinds of people in the world, those who believe, have faith in Christ, and those who don't. And I stand by that to this day with all my heart. But it's also just as true to say there are only two kinds of people in the world. Those who love the least of Jesus' brethren in their time of need and those who don't. Because that's what this text is about, isn't it? And that's the distinction between the sheep and the goats. Now, of course, those who believe and those who serve the least, are the same group. That's the point. And the point here is what group will you find yourself in? That's hard to avoid that question, isn't it? Will you be among those who Jesus says, depart from me? I never knew you. When I was hungry, you didn't care. Or are you going to be among those who Jesus will say, come blessed of my Father. Enter into the kingdom 
He's prepared for you before the foundation of the world. Be ye ready, for you know not the hour on which your Lord comes. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Wow, Father. We thank you for these words of our Lord and Savior, the King. We thank you especially that he uttered them right before he started that long trek to die on an executioner's cross to pay for our sins. Thank you that he forewarned us ahead of time about the things that are important to him and should be important to us whose hearts have been redeemed, whose sins have been forgiven. Father, we pray that we, each and every one of us in this room, would take the words of Jesus to heart, that our lives would be different for having heard them, that we would not misunderstand them, and so put our faith in what we do, but rather that we would come to you humbly, especially knowing that we fail, to receive from you alone mercy, grace, forgiveness, restoration, and a renewed heart that does these things without even realizing them. The Lord bless us to this end, It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.